want to invite you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I think I'm going to begin today just by reading um, the verses that we've read many times already, uh, verses 14 to 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, just to sort of get uh, this passage framed up in our mind before I move into a little bit of an introduction to our focus today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Now I want to draw your attention for the point of our introduction to verses 21 and 22. And I just want to read them again so that we can all have this ringing in our minds as I move into this next, this next uh, point of introduction. He says there at the end of this section, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? I want to read to you a sermon. It was, I suppose, presented, delivered in June, on June 6th of 2021, by a man named Josh Evans. A uh, little bio, the Reverend Josh Evans, pronouns are he, they, just so you know, is a preacher, liturgist, and pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Currently, he's serving St. John's Lutheran Church in Albany, New York, a reconciling in Christ congregation of the upstate New York Synod. So what is Reconciling in Christ, you might ask? Well, since 1983, the Reconciling in Christ program has been a public way for faith communities to see, name, celebrate, and advocate for people of all sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions in the Lutheran Church. The RIC, or Reconciling in Christ program, is made up of congregations, Synods, colleges, seminaries, outdoor ministries, and other Lutheran organizations. The title of the sermon is Freed to Be, a sermon for Pride Month. I'm not sure if you are aware, but as we approach the summer months, June is Pride Month. It's it's upon us. And I want to read this to you, and I, I, what, I, what I hope and what I don't want to happen is for this to be some sort of particular provocation toward 
greater concern and lament for what we are experiencing in our culture as it relates to this particular movement. What I want to do is I want to read this sermon from an ordained minister in a Lutheran denomination with those two verses that I just emphasized to you in mind as we work our way through this entire text that I read here at the beginning. I I want us to understand what it is we must stand upon and why as we think about these matters that are confronting us, not just writ large in society in some kind of broad, amorphous way, but makes its way into churches and denominations and into sermons, even. Here's the, here's the sermon. And by the way, the sermon is this long. That's it. I didn't want you to get nervous that I'm going to read a sermon. That's long, that's long for a sermon. <laughs> he says, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was the summer of 2011, almost 10 years ago to the day. I had just graduated from college earlier that spring with my highly honorable and practically useless liberal arts bachelor's degree in English. I'm sorry for any English majors in here, that's just what he said. (laughs) I'd also just started attending a new church community in the Wicker Park neighborhood of Chicago. Oh, and somewhere in the middle of all that, I had also just recently started the process of coming out as gay. In the midst of my last semester of college, coming to terms with who I was, I found Urban Village Church by the pure luck of a Google search for a, quote, gay-friendly, for, quote, gay-friendly churches in Chicago, end quote. After years of growing up in a denomination that actively excluded LGBTQIA plus people, both in the pews and in the pulpit, I didn't think such a place existed, let alone so many of them as I would come to discover. And I certainly had no idea what this reconciling in Christ thing was. So there I was, not only at my first ever pride parade, but marching in it with my church. And not just my church, but with over 80 faith communities that make up the Chicago Coalition of welcoming churches from across denominations and traditions. I remember it like it was yesterday, standing in the middle of Broadway on the north side of Chicago on a hot summer Sunday afternoon, getting ready for the parade to step off, and looking out over a sea of poster board signs each bearing the rainbow logo of the Chicago Coalition of Welcoming Churches and the name of a different faith community from the city and the surrounding suburbs. Only months before, I could have hardly dreamed of such a sight, hardly dreamed such a sight was possible, and yet there I was. I'm sure you guys, at one point or another, have seen clips and whatnot of these parades. This Sunday... As we stand at the beginning of another Pride Month, I'm reminded of that welcome I received at Urban Village now 10 years ago. It was an experience that freed me to be fully myself, fully who God created me to be. At the same time, this Sunday, 
I'm also acutely aware that not everybody experiences that welcome, certainly not in the church. It's no secret that the church as a whole has been a source of pain and trauma for the LGBTQIA plus community, and only about 10% of the 8,900 congregations of the ELCA, his denomination, are reconciling in Christ. For as long as exclusion exists, there, are still, there is still work to be done. But this is a sermon, so there's good news in here somewhere, right? This week, for me, the good news came from an unlikely place. It's no secret either that the Apostle Paul, responsible for much of what we call the New Testament, hasn't been much of a friend to certain marginalized communities within the history of Christianity. Paul's writings have been used to justify slavery, to bar women from being ordained as pastors, and to exclude and harm LGBTQIA plus persons in the church. And yet, Paul writes, quote, So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day, 2 Corinthians 4.16. In a world marred by brokenness and division, there is so much that wastes away at our outer nature and our outer selves. So much that degrades who we are in our bodies and how we live and move in the world as the people God created us to be. He has gone out of his mind, Jesus' own family tries to restrain him, to hold him back from being fully himself and from doing the work he was called to do. I want you to catch that. This is a Lutheran pastor who is invoking... Historical narrative from the Gospels in which Jesus' family thought he was a madman. And he uses it to conflate what was happening there and really misinterpret what was happening there with himself. That Jesus, that outer forces were trying to restrain Jesus from being fully who he was meant to be in the same way that outer forces are constraining me, constraining us from being fully who God created us to be. He goes on. Jesus' own family tries to restrain him, to hold him back from being fully himself and from doing the work he was called to do, to cure the sick, to feed the hungry, to befriend the lonely, to preach good news to the poor and the oppressed. He's out of his mind. This is embarrassing. It's too much, too fast. It's causing a scene. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, forces beyond our control system, excuse me, forces beyond our control seem to try their hardest to hold us back sometimes, don't they? The voice that says, you're too much, or out of your mind, or not enough. There is so much that wastes away at us. But our inner nature is being renewed day by day. It's not that, outer, it's not that the outer nature, our embodied lives, doesn't matter to Paul. But rather, it's an encouragement to an early church community. An encouragement to us even now. We who live in an in-between place where our lives are still wounded by sin, even while Christ's Spirit sustains and renews us. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. 
the inner nature that God has made and called very good. So understand, it's the inner nature, the person whom God has called him to be, which is openly homosexual, that God has called very good. Not regardless of who we are, as a colleague of mine pointed out this week, but because of who we are, God calls us very good. The inner nature that God claims and names as beloved in the waters of baptism, the waters into which we are immersed and from which we rise renewed every day, renewed for the work of God's reign of love. This is about resurrection. Christ's resurrection and victory over death means that the powers and the forces that waste away at us, that alienate us from God and from each other, have been defeated, try as they might, to continue to assail us. God frees us to be who we are now, our full selves. Whether we march with the rainbow flags during Pride Month or simply exist in our ordinary everyday lives in our neighborhoods and communities in Glenview. God frees us to be who we are so that grace, Paul writes, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. God frees us to be who we are so that grace may abound. Over the last two weeks, we looked at a variety of views on communion as a springboard study from this particular passage where the Apostle Paul invokes the elements of communion as an illustrative point to his larger point. And you may recall that one of the primary views that we looked at was, in fact, the Lutheran view of communion. And here we have an entire denomination of Lutherans under the umbrella of God's affirmation that you, being fully who you deem you are, is what God affirms and calls very good. So much so that it is a point of rejoicing and celebration for assemblies of quote-unquote professing believers to gather and to celebrate blatant and open immorality in the streets. And so here we are at a point in time where this particular matter is going to continue to confront us as the people of God. And we need to understand what it is we are to stand upon and why. And I believe that this particular passage makes that so very, very clear for us. We've been talking about this broader matter of walking faithfully in a world of idols. And we haven't just assigned this understanding of idolatry as something that's plaguing society out there and that we have to contend with. What we have to acknowledge is that living in a world of idols means that idolatry gets on us. More importantly, in our flesh that we are seeking to mortify in the Spirit and the power of Christ day by day, 
there are still clinging elements and tendencies and inclinations toward idolatry that reside even within us. So we live in a society that is awash in idolatry. We have resident fleshly carnal appetites and desires that lean us or drive us toward, at minimum, associations with idolatry, if not engagement in practices and rituals of idolatry. And this particular text has been providing for us principles in how we are to stand and walk faithfully in the midst of all of that. The first point that we looked at over, over a couple of weeks, a number of weeks ago, was that if we're going to walk faithfully in this kind of context, which was the context of first century Corinth, by the way, we first of all need to resist prideful presumption by recalling redemptive history. This is what the Apostle Paul deals with in the first 12 verses of this section that we didn't read this morning, but we've dealt with it at length in some time ago, where he draws upon the Old Testament narrative of the Exodus to compel even first century, primarily Gentile believers to be consistently looking back at actual redemptive history as it was made most manifest as an example and a point of instruction for us in the Exodus and in the wilderness wanderings, where God miraculously and graciously provided deliverance for His chosen people, provided sustenance even for His chosen people, and those very people began to grumble and complain at God's provision, began to wander into idolatry as they waited on the Lord for His word from the mountain, they, 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 they chose to engage in aberrant forms of worship, even though they thought they were worshiping the one true God, they worship, weren't worshiping God in the way that he prescribed. At other times, they engaged in feasts and festivals that were akin to all-out pagan rituals and in, engaging in all manner of, of debauchery and sexual immorality, drunkenness. And they grumbled and they complained at the Lord for his failure to provide in the specific ways that they thought that they deserved or they needed, and that God judged them. And that's the pattern that the Apostle Paul is pointing us to, that, that this is, this is the, the essence and nature of God's work in redemptive history, and we're going to see this again, even from New Testament instruction. And so one of the ways that we can stand firm is to be routinely reminded of who God is, what He has provided, how he works among his people, what he calls us to, and what are the consequences of walking away from that provision and that grace and that fellowship. Secondly, we looked at the need for us to resist what is really common temptation by fully trusting in the Lord's faithfulness. We saw this in verses 13 to 14, where we see that the Apostle Paul is telling the Corinthians, listen, Whatever trial, whatever test, whatever temptation you're facing, it's not something that is not already common to man. You're not not facing something that's somehow unique to you. You don't get to wallow in self-pity or make excuses for your lack of faithfulness. You're being tested and you're being put into situations by virtue of a fallen world or by virtue of your own pride or sinful flesh, but it's not unique to you. And by the way, 
There is a way to overcome this, and the way that you overcome these temptations is to fully trust in the Lord's provision, because He will never put you into a position where you're not able to bear up under that that temptation and endure it, and He will always provide a way of escape. That is a testimony of the faithfulness, the consummate faithfulness of the Lord, not as a charge for us to just try harder to overcome. So we, we overcome or resist the temptation to slide into patterns of idolatry, not by just trying to not fall into patterns of idolatry, but by fully trusting in the Lord and His faithful promised provision of sustaining endurance and a way of escape at every point. And then we looked at this call for us to recognize the true nature of communal fellowship in Christ, verses 14 to 18. That's what led us to talk about some of these views on communion because the Apostle Paul uses the elements of communion, even in the passages that we read this morning, to to draw out a larger and more significant point. We need to recognize that the true nature of communal fellowship that we have in Christ. And then fourthly, we need to recognize the true nature of idolatry's corruption, excuse me, idolatry's corrupting influence and effect. And that's, that's the last part of the section that we read this morning. So these two final points, really it could be taken up together as we've said before. And it's really about this drawing this contrast between what it means to participate in the Lord's table versus participating at the table of demons. That's what he's saying. And what we, what we saw in the, in the emphasis on the last two verses that we read in this section, that those two things do not coincide at all. There is no coinciding of those two things, ever. Something, in other words, has to give. We want to take up this, this recognition of the true nature of idolatry's corrupting influence and effect today and look at it much more intently. Certainly the sermon that I read to you before is a very vivid illustration of that corrupting influence. But we want to look at this this nature of of communal fellowship and participation and, and how that can be corrupted by the influence of idolatry. In order, though, for us to be able to effectively recognize how corrupting this influence can be, we need to really make sure we understand what is actually being corrupted. What what gets corrupted? If, If elements of idolatry can, in fact, seep into the fellowship of a local church and corrupt it, what's actually being corrupted? What's really at harm? What's really in harm's way, if you will? And so... The Apostle Paul uses this practice, this common practice had become common in the first century church, as it is common even in our local church, this practice of the Lord's Supper. It serves here in this text as a very vivid illustration of what we might just call the believer's fundamental identity. The Apostle Paul is using the elements of communion or these references to the cup of blessing that we bless, which is which is the blood of the new covenant, as Christ calls it in Matthew and other parts in other gospels, and and the bread that we break, he, he's using this to give us a visual picture 
of the believer's essential or fundamental identity. In other words, in, in partaking of the real physical elements of communion, the cup of blessing that we bless and the bread that we break, there is a representation of what we might call a more essential reality. And as believers, we are in fellowship with Christ and with one another by means of his shed blood and by means of his real physical sacrifice on the cross where Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He physically suffered. He shed real blood. His body was beaten and marred that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So he's pointing to the actual physical elements of communion to to illustrate the physical realities of the shed blood of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as the means by which we are brought into fellowship or identification with Christ and fellowship or identification with Christ's body, one another. So fundamental, so essential is this new identity in Christ that Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives of Christ, in other words. We have a new identity. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, to shed his blood, to, to have his body marred, to actually be physically sacrificed, but also to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No, this is fundamental identity in Christ. And it was only made possible through this sacrificial shedding of his blood. And, and also, it's not merely this individual identity. And this really gets to the broader point that the Apostle Paul has been hammering on, that we've been hammering on throughout this entire study. This is not just about our individual identity in Christ. It is about, about our collective identity as part of the body of Christ. He even says in verse 17, he, he, he brings up this issue of, of the bread, and he says, he, put, he starts to push this larger, broader body metaphor to illustrate this collective identity. In verse 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So this, this is essential to our understanding of the collective identity and unity of believers. This fundamental identity in Christ and this fundamental collective identity in the body of Christ. 
this body metaphor, Paul employs it all throughout his letters. This is such a profound truth and such an important, even practical reality for us to recognize. We need to understand what gets corrupted. And he's trying to help us to understand that this is what gets corrupted. You get corrupted, but then the body gets corrupted. And this body metaphor is so powerful all throughout the Apostle Paul's letters. Let me just rapid fire through some of them. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Even the reference to our individual identity, he pushes us back into identity with one another. Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You skip down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's just the Apostle Paul saying, this doesn't work apart from the body coming together in this way. It's not a church. It's something else. Colossians 3, 12 to 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So all these appeals to individual virtue, it's all about how that virtue permeates your life as part of the body of Christ and brings blessing and benefit to others who are part of that body. And then you come to the most detailed and prolific example of this body metaphor that we'll get to fairly soon in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But just listen to this. I'm just going to read. I know I'm reading a lot here, but listen to how detailed the Apostle Paul gets to make this significant point about who it is or what it is that gets corrupted when we individually allow idolatry or idolatrous associations or the impact of idolatrous tendencies to slip into the life of the church. This is what gets corrupted. Listen to what he says in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, 
that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our, un- unrepresent- excuse me, our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Any questions, the Apostle Paul would say? Do you understand? This is what gets corrupted when believers associate with or become mired in any form or practice of idolatry. This gets corrupted. This this willing, persistent, you might say undiscerning and shallow-purposed association with known idolaters. That would be one example. This idea that, you know, no harm, no foul. I'm not doing all the stuff that they're doing. But there's persistent, consistent, undiscerning, and unpurposed associations. We're not talking about, you know, ministry-related or evangelistic intense associations. We're talking about unpurposed, consistent associations. And somehow... Believers can begin to think that this is no, that has no effect on me. This is not a problem. I mean, I don't feel any effect of it. Really. Well, that would be one thing. But according to the Apostle Paul, if you are a believer and you are actually a part of the body of Christ, not only have you become desensitized to what is true, but you're bringing that effect of that association into the body of Christ. So not only are you ignorant of its effect on you, you are doubling down on your ignorance of its effect on other believers in the body. This is why the Apostle Paul is so exercised over this matter and why God himself, we'll see in just a few minutes, is very exercised over this matter. When we have even willing and persistent and undiscerning and shallow-purposed participation in what you might call the rituals of idolatry. And we don't, we don't think it's of any harm or any consequence. It could just be associations that are consistent and undiscerning and unpurposed, but it also could be active participation in some of the rituals, the, the worldly, godless rituals that we just engage in without thought, persistently. And we might say things like, well, God doesn't say you can't do this. Or or what's, what's the harm? I mean, it's not causing me to do anything immoral. 
we're going to see that it's more than that. We might think that these habits or these relationships or these social engagements are inconsequential. But Paul is cautioning us against such a deception, and it is a deception. Look at verse 18 to 20. He says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Verse 19, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. In other words, this makes you a participant with demons. And I will remind you of that word participation or participant is the word Uh, for fellowship. It's the word for companionship, partnership. In the uh, Pillar New Testament commentary, it says this, Paul's argument suggests that the problem is not with food or drink itself, but with the social and spiritual significance of eating or drinking it in context that may naturally be understood as condoning and or participating in the pagan offering itself. On the issue of eating food offered to idols, the Corinthians reason purely on the basis of the nature of the food. Paul argues on the basis of the potential significance of the act of eating it. So in other words, in the same way that the ritual practices of Israel and Israel's worship and their sacrifices cannot be detached from the actual worship itself, the actual worship of a deity, whether their sacrifices were to the true and living God as prescribed by God himself, or whether they were blasphemous and idolatrous as they were from time to time, as we saw as we looked at the Exodus in the, in the wilderness wanderings. Either way, the engagement or even the associations that they engaged in that were characterized by idolatry cannot be detached from the actual engagement in worship of the deity that's on offer in the worship, in the ritual. That would be the the argument of the Corinthians. I mean, I'm not not participating in the actual worship, and and it's just just meat. It, it, It doesn't mean anything. An idol doesn't mean anything. I'm not participating. The Apostle Paul's like, no, if you persistently do this with no purpose... You're participating in with demons, he would say. These Israelites would periodically bow the knee to pagan gods. And in the same way, we can't participate in the rituals of idolatry without participating in the worship of the demonic deity that the idol represents. When you look in the New Testament, when you look all throughout Scripture, what you will find over and over again is the, is the enormous absence of nuance, of could be this or could be that, particularly in these areas. You have images of salt and light, of life and death, of the truth or doctrines of demons. You don't have this sort of this large, broad, middle way that, you know, could go either way. It just depends on your interpretation. And what we find 
in all the manifestations of idolatry in our culture, in our society, are nuance, are this and that. In this sermon, what you find are numerous references to reconciliation, to a welcoming environment. To, to not being characterized by those who would do harm to our community. There's no reference at all to, well, what does it mean to be succumbing to doctrines of demons? They're not even going to take that discussion up. Paul would simply say, that when we go down this path, we actually become participants, fellowshippers, companions with demons. And this corrupting influence is not isolated at all. He goes on to say in verse 21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So whether we realize it or not, whether we're aware of it or not, we bring these corrosive effects, these corrosive influences of our willing associations with idolatry and idolaters right into the fellowship of the church. This is what he's saying here. He's saying you can't come to the table of the Lord and leave all that other stuff in a separate compartment. These things can't Live separately. In other words, you, you, you bring with you your participation in demons to the table of the Lord. This is the leaven principle that Paul speaks about in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. You have the situation in the first two verses where there's this report of sexual immorality. It's the kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. That's how bad it got. And you have the remedy that Paul prescribes for this. You have, you have a man who has his father's wife. You have a kind of an incestuous relationship. And they're being arrogant about it. They're not dealing with it as a church. And then the remedy that Paul prescribes, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and we know from the larger context of this chapter that it's around the Lord's table that this is to happen. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. This is the leaven principle. He's like, you can't can't mix leaven into dough and it not leaven the entire lump. Your boasting is not good, he says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. There's the reference to the the Lord's table. Let us celebrate the the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, what God is after is sincerity and truth of unmixed worship, of unmixed affection. And if there is, quote-unquote, mixed worship or mixed affection, which does not exist, 
It is the association, the participation, the fellowship with demons, he would say. We've never, I've, I've never really thought about it with this stark of a reality, but we need to. This is what the Apostle Paul is telling us. This kind of stark language, this is, this is not just some unique, obscure reference of the Apostle Paul. This is the stark language of Scripture. The apostles speak of this. Peter speaks of this. John, in 1 John, says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And this is just stark truth. This kind of hypocrisy, this corruption of worship, and this corruption of the purity of the fellowship in the body, it is not just a participation with demons. It is not just a corruption of the body that the Lord God Himself in Christ chose and then assembled as He willed. But it is a strong and dreadful provocation to God Himself. Verse 22, Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, you could go to, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 32, and you have Moses' song there, much of which is the Lord speaking a lament of the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel and how that provoked the Lord's jealousy and provoked him to anger of an intense sort. I mean, the descriptive language in in Deuteronomy chapter 32 is significant. And then provoked judgment upon that hypocrisy. And we could go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, but, but some might say, well, that's sort of the Old Testament God kind of thing. We're in a new era. We're in a new covenant. God is love. We, we have welcoming churches. We are reconciling in Christ. But I would point those people and all of us to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 31, which happens to be in the New Testament. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, fully new covenant, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is about the church. But listen to verse 26 and following. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume 
the adversaries. Hang on a second. This has got to be a copy and paste error from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. And then verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As we consider the implications of such a passage, it should indeed inform our thinking about all of these devastating realities that are confronting churches all around the country and around the world. It should inform how we think about and respond to the decay in our culture. But we need to recognize that there are going to be times in the life of the church and in the life of individual believers as we engage other people who might be in churches like this, there is going to have to be a gracious, kind, respectful, yet steely resolve and clear conviction and straightforward articulation of just what is true. We cannot get twisted and turned around the fake axle of this is what love requires of us. This is what compassion necessarily looks like. You have people who are blaspheming God himself and who are twisting the word of God and who are deceiving themselves and deceiving others as well. And so we need to have gospel language. We need to have biblical truth that we are armed with. The challenge that we face and the temptation that we must contend with is the temptation to reason from our own sense of offense at what we're seeing. To reason and to speak from a place that is really born out of some type of fleshly anger and rage at people who are influencing children in schools or some such reality that we have to contend with. The fact of the matter is, is that the Lord himself does not need our rage. He does not need our anger that is routinely mixed with selfish pride and sin. He is angry enough on his own. Vengeance is his. And so when I look at Hebrews 
and I look at this larger instruction about what's really going on, this association, this fellowship with demons. And I think of how I might communicate something to someone. I land on verse 31 with a sense of compassion and caution. Mr. Ma'am, do you not understand? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For you, for me, for anyone. You cannot eat at the table of demons and at the table of the Lord. God desires purity in, in worship. And when we bring any form of compromise or corruption into the life and ministry of the church, we need to recognize that we bring that into the body that he died for, that is made up of a collection, an assembly of his people. This should serve as a tremendous caution to us, a guard against shallow reflection upon the table of the Lord, the gathering of his people, the purposes that we are to serve in life and ministry in the body of Christ. It should, it should compel us to faithful articulation of sound, clear, biblical truth that is not born out of our own reason and not born out of our own rage, but it's simply compelled by a desire for the truth to be made known. And do we ever need the Lord's help and wisdom to do that? I've been saying this over and over again simply because I'm, I'm feeling the weight of this myself just in my own personal reflection and, and study and, and devotion and discussion with others. What the Lord is going to require of his people in faithfulness in this day and time it demands a level of clarity and devotion to understanding what his word says about these matters and to submit ourselves fully to it. Proclaim it and really step aside and trust him to do the work that he's going to do. God help us to do that. Let's pray.